boys and girls, today we're going to look at two more of the Psalms in our summer series, looking and working our way through the first 15 Psalms or so in the book of Psalms. We'll look at Psalm 3 this morning, and then this evening, God willing, we'll be looking at, at Psalm 4. And interestingly enough, these Psalms have been termed uh, the morning Psalm and the evening Psalm, or a Psalm for the morning and a prayer for the evening. And uh, they're relatively short psalms. They're only eight verses each. And they're the, a very, very similar structure because they're, they're in short two-verse stanzas. And you'll see that as, you, as we look at them together, you will see some similarities both this morning and this evening. They're also uh, termed psalms of lament. And you can see some of, as we work our way through these psalms, you'll see some of the cry of David and the heart searching of David uh, who is identified as the author of these. So let's read Psalm 3 together this morning. I'm going to read it then all the way through from the title and include the title. A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God, Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill, Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people, Selah. And Psalm 3 just happens to be the first of the Psalms that actually has the title in its opening words. And as we read together, it's a Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom the son. And this is really extremely helpful for us this morning because it not only gives us the author, but it gives us the historical context on which the Psalm is written. And uh, the Psalm while it may have been written over two and a half thousand years ago, the principles in it we can still apply today to ourselves, even though it has that historical context. And it really needs to be, as we go through this psalm, we're going to see how, it's, how important it is that we look at it in the terms of the historical context that it's set in. But before we begin to just dig into the psalm itself, I wonder how you felt over the last couple of months. Have you been like me? Have you been watching the TV? And all of a sudden, what has been almost nightly on the news has been some scandal or some real problem with individuals either in our government or individuals that are in the public eye. Even today, there's another public scandal, uh, uh, clouds on the horizon for someone. But think of even our, our political leaders. Think what has happened over the last number of years. We've gone from 
David Cameron, to, to Theresa May, to Boris Johnston, to Liz Trust, and to Rishi Sunak, all of a period of three or four years when sometimes prime ministers used to last for, for 10 years or so. But for some of those, and I, I think particularly of Liz Trust, think of what happened to her. She came in on a, a groundswell of opinion, replacing Boris Johnson. Let's turn over and get rid of all the, the old bad things and let's turn over a new lease. And all of a sudden, within almost a space of a very short time, she's not in power anymore. And I remember watching her leave the house at 10 Downing Street with the family. And while she was smiling, I'm sure inwardly she was absolutely torn up. I'm sure her, her whole life had been turned upside down. So much had become personal, not just her for position. So much of it would have hurt. So much of it would have been internalized by her as she left uh, that and had the reputation of being Britain's shortest serving prime minister. How on earth could everything go so south on her so quickly? And isn't that true of life though, isn't it? Isn't that what it's really like? Why we see it and it's been on our news and we see so much of it in, in the public eye, isn't that what it can be like for any of us? None of us know what the next day is going to bring. We could go into work tomorrow morning to be told that the, the firm's going to close and we're going to lose our job in a few weeks. Or we could have a, a routine doctor's appointment and come out with heartbroken news that we weren't expecting. And so our lives can be totally, totally turned on its head in a matter of moments, just as it was for, for lost trust. And just as it was for David two and a half thousand years ago. So what was happening to David? We, we read here when he fled from Absalom, his son. What was happening here? Let's think first then of David's danger. David's danger. And we look at the first two verses here to get, to get some idea of this. O oh Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. What has happened to David? What's going on here? What is this to do with fleeing from Absalom? And why is he having to flee from his son? Well, the answer is found in, in our Bibles. If we look through the book of 2 Samuel and we start around about chapter 13, work our way through to chapter 18, we'll find the answer. But I want to give you a brief background to it because it helps us understand what's going on. Absalom's stepbrother, uh, Amnon, had incestually raped and ruined the life of Absalom's sister, Tamar. And so Absalom decided he's going to get his own back on his stepbrother and he kills him. And what happens then is that after killing him, he, King David doesn't want to kill his own son. It's bad enough he's mourning the loss of Amnon. So he exiles Absalom. And Absalom's away for quite a number of years. And while he's exiled, he longs to get back to Jerusalem. He longs to get home. And eventually his supporters persuade King David to allow Absalom to come back to Jerusalem. Absalom come back, comes back to Jerusalem, but he's not allowed into the palace. He's allowed to come back and he's allowed to live in Jerusalem, but he's not allowed in. The king won't see him. His own father won't see him. 
So while he's in Jerusalem, Absalom sets out and becomes very popular with the people. What he does is he gets up early in the morning, he gets to the gate of the city, and when people are coming to talk to King David, uh, he says, tell your problem to me and I'll sort it out for you. And this goes on for a few years. And while that's all happening, the people are saying, oh, look at Absalom, he does, he's great. He's doing everything for us. King David's up in his palace and he's not bothering about the people at all. Doesn't care about us. Absalom really cares about us. And look, isn't he such a good looking lad? And, and you know, we, you can really get behind this guy. And so Absalom has built up a following. And it takes him a period of about four years. And over that four year period, he begins to feel, I could get rid of my dad here. So what he does, he takes off to a nearby town called Hebron. And there he more or less proclaims himself as king. And news comes to King David and they say to him, David, Absalom has proclaimed himself king in Hebron. And so David looks around about him and he sees that even some of his closest men uh, have, have fled and have gone to Absalom. A man called Ahithophel that we're going to mention again later on, one of the leading men of King David's has gone and sided with Absalom. David realizes this is beyond serious. And he's not allowed, like Liz Truss, to leave Downing Street holding her head eye. He has to flee out of Jerusalem and sneak out as fast as he can. And the Bible teaches us about how he, he does that, how he has to leave and the, the, the quickest way out is up over the Mount of Olives and he's head bowed, head covered and he's crying and we're going to, we'll come back to that in a moment as he leaves Jerusalem. How many are his foes? It seemed to David that the whole nation had risen with Absalom against King David. His whole world turned upside down in an instant. And then in verse 2, we go on to read, Many of are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. As he was fleeing Jerusalem, there are those that come out. And there are some that are weeping because they see David fleeing. But there are many others and they, they're taunting him. One man in particular called Shimni, he, is, he throws clods of earth at David and taunts him. And what do you do? Yo, get out, leave all the rest of it. And maybe there is, to some of those people, a sense of David getting what he deserved because after all, of the things that he had done with Bathsheba, with Bathsheba's husband and so on. So maybe some people have thought, well, David's getting what he deserves. Time to get rid of him. But you can see the trauma here in David's life. It's turned upside down. And then saying that there's no salvation for him in God, well, what they're actually saying is that God isn't going to deliver him this time. It's not going to happen. There's no salvation. He's had it. That's it. So with everything stacked against him, David must have been in total despair, mustn't he? You can imagine. But then he remembers he's not on his own. So let's look secondly at David's defender. David's defender. And we find this in verses 3 to 6. 
Verse 3, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Let's think about verses 3 and 4 first. So even though everything must have seemed really hopeless, David turns to God, even at a time when he is under the rack, as it were. He, he just turns to God. And not only does he turn to God, he calls God by his name. You see the, the, the word Lord is in capital letters there. So he calls God by name, indicates the use of that God's name. He reminds himself as he does this, he reminds himself of what God means to him. He reminds himself of what God has done for him in the, in the past. Look at verse 4, and it says that David had, it says, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill, because David found it in the past that his prayers had been answered. His prayers had been answered. David's fleeing Jerusalem, but as he is fleeing, he remembers that, well, yes, God has answered my prayer in the past. God has answered him out of his holy hill. Now, that holy hill is always meant to be Mount Zion, the site of the temple. It hadn't been built, but it was in David's heart to build a temple on that particular part of Jerusalem and Mount Zion. And so this is where he sees God going to dwell. This is where he, he sees God going to be. And he knows and he says, God's going to answer me. And God has answered me in the past. And, and as well as that, he, he says, but God has also protected me from my enemies in the past. And he remembers that. Look at verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. A shield? Well, in the Bible earlier on, we find that when it comes to the nation of Israel, before it even had been founded, God is described as Abraham's shield. And as he was the father of the nation... And then later on, as the nation gets enlarged and there's many, many thousands and hundreds of thousands of people, God is described as the shield of the nation of Israel. And now David's becoming very specific. And he's saying, you, Lord, are, are a shield about me. And it's not just any shield, a shield that we think of as being something worn in the arm for defense. No, no, this shield is something greater than that, it's bigger than that, it's better than that. It's described as something that is wrapped right round about. So it's a shield, not just in front and on the side, but it's a shield that goes right round about. I remember an advert years and years and years ago, and it was about an insurance company, and they were saying, get the strength of the insurance company, and they showed a wee man standing inside almost a castle uh, and his family, and the all-round protection that you got from the insurance company. This is the idea of the shield that God is to David. A roundabout protection on all sides. And as well as a shield, David remembers and remarks that God is his, his glory. He, he remembers that all that he is, <coughs> excuse me, all that he is, is because of what God has done for him. His position as king is because God elevated him to become king. His position for everything in life is because God gave him those things and all was due, due to God working in his life. And that really encourages David. He's seeing that 
God has answered his prayer. He's knowing that God is a shield round about him, but he knows also that God is the one that has put him in place. And if, God, if he is going to be restored to place, it will be God once again that will do that. And you know, like David, our lives are nothing, uh, but our glory is found only in Jesus. Remember John 17, we, we looked at that through Timothy, we looked at that wonderful prayer of Jesus. And Jesus says, the glory you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them, and you in me. God has given us everything in our lives. All that we are, all that we have, all that we uh, are in position in this world is all due to God. So David realizes that he has prayer, that he can turn to his God. He realizes that God is defending him. He realizes that all that he has is due to God's glory. And as well as that, he's, God is described as the lifter of his head. That's a strange word, isn't it? But uh, it's lifter of his head, strange phrase. But think what it must have been like for David. In 2 Samuel 15, we get the picture of the beaten king fleeing up of Jerusalem, up the Mount of Olives, I was saying. We read this in verse 30. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. Can't you imagine the scene, can't you? You can really, you can really feel it. He's distraught, he's destitute, he's trying to flee as fast as he can from Absalom. You can feel his utter helplessness can't you you really just see his sense of despair and then put that into our lives today think of the times when we just feel so low and so despair think of the times when we feel helpless in the situation that we find ourselves in and then remember God and like David, let's remember that God answers our prayers. That God is our shield. That God is the one that puts us in place. That God is the one that can lift us out of that despair, out of that black hole that we're in. So much so, David is able to put his head down and go to sleep. We're going to see that now. Imagine what it's like when we're in trouble. I, I've spent, and I'm sure like many here, we've spent restless nights struggling to sleep as your mind churns over some anxiety or other trying to find rest for our bodies while our mind won't give up but david's able to go to sleep because he's confidence in god to defend him he suddenly reminded himself of where he stands where he is and in verse 5 we read i lay down and slept i woke again for the lord sustained me I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Now you see why the psalm is also termed a psalm for the morning. I lay down and slept and I woke again the next morning and I found the Lord had sustained me. Uh, and I'm not going to be afraid of the thousands of people who are after me. Now what, what was specific or what was the problem here about that, the night? What, what, he had survived the night. Why, why was that such an encouragement to him? Well, what happened was as David left Jerusalem, Ahithophel came to King Absalom and he says, look, I've got 12,000 men here. 
let's go after David now. Let's pursue him while he's running away. Let's get him while he's down. And let's get him and finish the job off. But another man that had been left behind, a man called Hushai, he came in and uh, Absalom said, let's hear what Hushai has to say. And Hushai said, look, no, no, no. He says, don't run after him now because the men are with him. They're expecting an attack. They'll fight tooth and nail for, their, for the ones that are loyal to David will really fight hard. And while we might have 12,000, it'd be better to wait until we've got more men from the rest of Israel. And you know, Absalom then said, Hushai's advice is the one I'm going to take. I'm not going to take Ahithophel's. But you know, Ahithophel's, if you think about it, it was the logical and the right thing to do. But let's hear what it reads here in 2 Samuel 17, verse 14. Absalom said, and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai, the archite, is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had ordained, now listen to this, for the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. God had intervened in the situation that night. David went to sleep and he woke the next morning and no attack had materialized from Ahithophel and the 12,000 men that he had at disposal to chase after him. And God, David wakes with this renewed confidence then because of that. You know, how often when we think everything's lost. But when we find out later, when we look back and when we find out about things, we find God's already been working in our lives to resolve the situation that we found ourselves in. And then we can turn and praise God. We might not realize it at the time, but God is already working things through for us. If God be for us, who can be against us? So you can get this feeling and this sense of boldness and confidence then as we come into the last portion of the psalm and we find David's deliverer. And as we read verses 7 and 8, we find, we read this, Arise, verse 7, Arise, O Lord, save me, my God, uh, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Strange words as well, but God here is invoked by David. He calls him, he asks him, Look, Lord, um, I, please deliver me from this, from all that's happening here. And remember back to verse 2. You remember I said that the people were crying out and they were shouting, oh, there's no salvation for him in God. No delivery, no deliverance for him in God. Well, David turns it back on his head and he says, God, deliver me. God, save me. Imagine what it must have been like. I can't imagine anything worse than the situation that David found himself in. But he's writing about God's power in this situation and how he sees that God will deliver him. And he mentions a couple of things which might seem a little bit odd. He, he, asks, he, he says that God is the one that will strike him on the cheek, the enemies on his cheek. And what does that mean? Well, in the, the, the Middle East, when you fought a battle and you'd conquered and won, and the, the leaders, maybe the king or whatever you conquered, was brought to you as your prisoner, what you, a final insult, a final insult was to strike them on the cheek. Basically, you can't do anything now. 
that's it. Showing that you've been totally defeated. So there was that sense of victory. And David here is very confident that God will totally defeat the enemies and resolve the situation that he finds him in. God it will be the ultimate victor. And what about the idea of teeth broken? Well, this is the, uh, in one sense, a bit like the idea of um, a wild animal and a wild animal on its prey and having uh, the teeth of that wild animal shattered. And of course, without the teeth, the wild animal isn't able to attack its prey the way it otherwise would have been. And, and you get the concept, you get the idea of something that's been, well, what, what do we describe it as? We call it something like that, uh, that threat, well, it's toothless. There's no, there's, no, there's no power behind it. It's not able to deliver it, not able to act on it. So you get this picture that God not only will have the final victory, but he just renders all David's, he'll, he'll render David's enemies powerless. And then in verse 8, we find salvation and blessing through this wonderful deliverer of God that David has. How the picture has changed in the opening verses, hasn't it? There, it looked like a picture of utter hopelessness and helplessness. But David's no longer in desperation and despair. He has put his trust in God to deliver him and to bring him salvation. And not only that, not only has, but in, in verse 8 we're reading, salvation belongs to the Lord, your blessing be on your people. So David goes even further. He, he has such confidence that God has done for him that he asks God as well to bless his people, that the nation of Israel, most of whom at this point in time would be seen to have turned against David. So David's actually praying for God's blessing on his enemies. David's actually turning around and he's so concerned for God and God, he says, God, I want you to bless the people. I want you to bless the people. Do you remember the words of Jesus on the cross? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Doesn't it remind us of that? We get this, David is concerned not just for himself, but David is concerned for all of his nation. So when our world's turned upside down and life seems to be falling apart on us, we mustn't allow ourselves to turn away from God. Indeed, and rather, that's the time when we need to turn to God. When the tsunami hits our, our life, we need to come and pray to God and to praise him and to remember that he is the God of our salvation. We have a, this psalm for our guidance. When we come to do that, we have a defender and a deliverer in God. And ultimately, we have our salvation in our Savior. I want to quote from, as I finish this, I want to quote from Peter Lang in his commentary on this psalm. I'll just read it to you. To truly flee for refuge is to flee to God. To truly flee for refuge is to flee to God. For that leads us away from the tumult of the world into the peace of God. Away from earthly oppression to everlasting salvation. Away from the power of men to the hands of God. The one who can pray in time of need is in the right way of salvation. 
He looks beyond the multitude and the strength of his oppressors to the power and to the favor of the Most High God. He doesn't hear the scorn and threatening of his enemies, but he hears the comforting voice and answer of God. He experiences amid all the afflictions and anxieties of his heart the comfort of communion with the one who is the sole help in time of need and the true deliverer of the faithful. God is our shield. God is our glory. God is a lifter of our head. God is our deliverer. God is our salvation. We'll stand together to sing the Lord is our salvation.